Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B, where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACEs. If you're interested in furthering this conversation, please email me at contact at drbconnections.com. If you want to know more about me or book a training, go to my website at www.drbconnections.com. This episode was was recorded on April 19th, 2020 during a Facebook Live series. Without further ado, let's kick it over to the episode. All right, so let's talk adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACEs. And these are also, this is considered a social Adverse childhood experiences are considered social determinants of health. What does that mean? It means that things in your social environment can actually have an impact on your long-term health and well-being. So what are those kinds of things that can have um, an adverse effect on your health and well-being? Well, relationships have effects on our health. Uh, Immigration status can have an effect on our health. Housing can have effect on our health. Our safety or our perception of how safe we are in the environment can have an impact on our health. So lots and lots of things can impact our health, but they're rooted in our social environment. So there's been a big study that started back in the 90s, but it's getting a lot of play today in close to 2020, which I think is so interesting because I actually met the uh, originator of this study, Vince Felitti, back in the late 90s when he was first reporting out the results, which were fascinating then, but now we're driving so many policy changes today, 20 plus years later, and I'm so excited, but it just goes to show how it takes a while for things to hook in. So it was the largest study of its kind connecting adverse childhood experiences to physical health. The study was done by Kaiser Permanente. It was done by researchers named Felitti and Anda. They took a whole lot of heat from the medical community at the beginning because nobody really believed that your social experiences really had any determination of how you're, whether you got diabetes or not, or had high blood pressure or heart disease or drug addiction, any of those things. Like nobody believed that those were necessarily rooted in traumatic experiences. So the original study by Felitti and Anda was with 17,300 people, give or take a few, connecting ACEs to specific health consequences. So what we learned from that study is that adverse childhood experiences do have, or they create a vulnerability for mental health and physical health. 
So how did they do that? What they did was they took all the the 17,000 people. Now, these were just 17,000 San Diego patients who had their insurance, their regular work insurance through Kaiser Permanente, a relatively middle-class population in San Diego. This was not a population that was uh, a high-risk population for any reason in particular. So this is a pretty average, run-of-the-mill, middle-class study population. Now now this kind of research is being done in a whole lot of different higher vulnerable populations, and we're getting new, new information. But this one was done in the you and me kind of group. So... <clears throat> All right, so what they did was they compared, there's a list of adverse childhood experiences, which I'm gonna go over next. But before we get distracted by that, I wanna say, they took the 10 top adverse childhood experiences that they identified, and they said, hey, okay, we're gonna give each one of these experiences a score of one. So if it happened to you one time, you get a one. If it happened to you a thousand times, you still only get a one which really means that we underrepresent adverse childhood experiences in the population. But that's okay because that means that the higher people's score, then we can say, okay, we're underrepresenting, so we should over prepare for that in our protective factors and ways of building better communities, education, and families. So what they did was they look at, how many adverse childhood experiences you have between one and 10 or zero and 10 and compared them to doctor visits, pharmacy use, emergency department visits, hospitalizations, and early death. And so really the craziest thing of all is that adverse childhood experiences can really glean about 20 years off a person's life because of unresolved trauma in early childhood. So we look at that if you have an adverse childhood experiences, then that sets you up for social, emotional, and cognitive impairment. So if you live in a chaotic early environment, then your brain maybe doesn't wire necessarily for consistency, but it wires for chaos. And then what does that do? That help, that pushes you into an environment that's difficult to predict because it's, hello, you grew up in an unpredictable environment. Maybe now you engage in more risky behaviors because you have to do a bunch of trying things out to see how they end up. And then those things, when you, when you engage in risky behavior, let's say smoking, trying drugs, drinking alcohol, doing other things, that can lead to disease, disability, and other social problems. And then those social problems, alcoholism, drug addiction, risky behavior, driving too fast or driving under the influence can lead to disability or early death. So that's how the methods work in this research study. But let's talk about some of the findings. Adverse childhood experiences. What's the prevalence? Claudia, this is going to speak to your comment. Um, it may underrepresent, but that one experience may alter you in one gigantic way. Oh, absolutely, which is why we count it, whether it's one or a thousand. 
because one experience can have a completely transformational impact on somebody's life. The beauty is it can have a positive impact or a negative impact. We're going to talk about resiliency tomorrow because resiliency is the mediator of trauma. So I showed a really fun video today about this one teacher who took the tapping little boy in the classroom who just couldn't keep still because he was always tapping and said, you stay after class. And when he took that little boy in after class, the little boy's like, oh my gosh, I'm in so much trouble. And the teacher pulled out a pair of drumsticks and said, have you ever thought you might be a drummer? And that little boy ended up going through college on a full ride drumming. He became a professional drummer and it all started because he thought he was in so much trouble and people gave him so much grief about tapping and patting and doing all of this anxious stuff in his classes all the time. But the teacher found his passion. So anyway, let's get back to adverse childhood experiences. So there's personal ones and there are household dysfunctions. So the personal abuse things that impact us that are considered ACEs are emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, physical neglect, and emotional neglect. Now, we undervalidate the impact neglect has on people's lives. Neglect is actually so much more harmful than physical abuse. Now, I'm not saying, okay, go ahead and physically abuse people. That's not okay either. However, the, the effects of neglect have a whole different layer of emotional trauma because Physical abuse, you can see the impact. You can see the bruising, the blood, and the harm. When it's emotional abuse, you can't see those scars, and they live deep, and nobody responds to that with people. And so that's why it's really important to be able to talk about how people feel like they were harmed and hurt in um, in, a, in their world. So... Emotional abuse is the first one. And emotional abuse was prevalent in just this person, just this group. We're not talking about the whole world. This is a small study of 17,000 and a half people. So 17,300 people. 10%, almost 11% of them experienced emotional abuse. 28.3% experienced physical abuse. 20.7%, almost 21% experienced physical abuse. And 10% physical neglect, no food, no shelter, no uh, access to water, just all those things that are physical neglect. And about 15% experienced emotional neglect. Like, I don't even see you, you don't matter, you're nothing to me, that kind of neglect. So emotional abuse is different than emotional neglect because emotional abuse is like the kiddo's face is riddled with things like idiot, stupid, worth, unworthy, terrible person, all those mean things that people say to somebody that are outward where emotional neglect is like you're just completely unseen, which is terrifying and awful because you feel isolated and scared and depressed when we're not seen or in existence with the social group. That's how we are. That's what humans are. We're a social, socially connected group. So 
So when we look at that, a third of this population experienced physical abuse. That means spanked with something other than a hand that left a mark or there was a spoon involved or a belt or some other piece of equipment to beat somebody with. Sexual abuse, 20, one-fifth, one out of five people in this group alone experience sexual abuse. And the number is actually higher, of course, for women than it is for men. However, what you might be surprised to learn is that one in three women experience sexual abuse in their lifetime and the number is only one, it's one in six for men, which is still way, way, way too high. But not talking about that in this group. This is just this, this uh, research group. So household dysfunction includes substance misuse, alcohol, drugs, anything like that. 26.9%, so 27%, we're almost at a third of the group again. Divorce or abandonment, which is... Divorce feels like abandonment to children, and that's a terrible feeling. So divorce, no matter how well it's handled, is still considered um, an adverse childhood experience. We lose a lot of our supports, you know, when people get divorced. 23.3% of this population. Mental illness. That means that somebody in the household suffers from depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, any any mental illness within the household that somebody experiences. And that was 19.4%, so just about 20%. Again, one in, one in five. Mother treated violently. That means that the mother is treated violently. Domestic violence in the household, 12.7, so almost 13%. Or a person in the family in the household would went to prison or is in prison. And it doesn't matter if it's a parent or a sibling or somebody else who lives in the household with the child. So that's the prevalence, which shows that in a regular, pretty middle-class group of people in San Diego, there's a high prevalence of adverse childhood experiences. And we didn't ask how many times any of these terrible things happen. We just ask if they did or not. So... What happens with that information is that it leads to more information and slightly more than half of the middle-class American population experience, experience one or more of the categories studied. So we can speculate out with this research that with a middle-class American population, Half of those people, 50%, have experienced at least one adverse childhood experience. Now, one in four people have experienced two, and one in 16 people have experienced four. Now, given exposure to one adverse childhood experience increases your risk of having a second one by 80%. So you're not, it's not like a, you're a 0% chance and then you're 0% chance again. If you have one, then it's an 80% chance that you have two. And then if you have two, there's an 80% chance that you have three. And if you have three, there's an 80% chance that you have four because they're sort of cumulative and they go hand in hand. Mental illness oftentimes goes along hand in hand with substance abuse. 
uh, sometimes domestic violence, sometimes people being imprisoned, physical abuse, emotional abuse. People say things that they shouldn't say when they've been using alcohol or drugs, or they treat people differently and physically and emotionally unkind. So you can see how they all kind of weave together in an unhealthy way that could lead to a shorter lifespan or a lot of physical health impacts. So the ACEs study summary findings are that when we look at depression, let's just take depression in and of itself, that the higher the ACE score, the higher the risk. That seems like a given. But individuals with an ACE score of four or higher are 460% more likely to suffer from depression. Okay, 460%, that's, that's just like a math number that most people don't even know how to do. 1,220% more likely to have attempted suicide. If you know somebody who has attempted suicide, you can assume pretty accurately that there's some trauma history there that has not been resolved or handled or you know treated in any way. So when we look at our populations that are at risk of suicide, we need to dig deep for what, where's the trauma and the inability. I won't even say inability because that makes it sound like it's their fault. The, where, is, where does the healing happen in order to support somebody through, through trauma? Because we do know that we can do that. DNA and experience are not our destiny. We have the capacity to heal trauma, but it's very difficult to do it alone. So, so uh, the, the next one, I, and I always think this one is so palpable in the world, which is IV drug use. People who use IV drugs, so you know anybody who takes a needle and in, injects heroin, uh, speed balls, does any of those kinds of really high, high risk, ad addictive and harmful behaviors. They, okay, 4,600% increase in IV drug use for individuals with an ACE score of six. So you're probably not going to find a drug a, an IV drug user who has zero, who has a zero ACE score, probably not a one, probably not even a two, because that level of risky behavior requires there to be significant trauma. And the relation, so the, what we know is that the relationship to ACEs is graded. So the higher the ACE score, the more likely the behaviors are going to be there that are risky and impact our health in the future. So there's a, there's a uh, what do you call it? Um, <clears throat> like a poster that has a picture of this person's face. Um, this person's face with, a, they're made up though of a bunch of different pills. So it's like a statue, but it's made out of pills. And it says the main cause of drug addiction in the world is pharmaceutical industry and its profits. 
And I say, no, I don't believe that. That is not the main cause of our drug addiction. Drug addiction is caused by unresolved trauma and untreated trauma and being unaware that trauma exists systematically in our world and environment. So it's not drugs. Drugs are an attempt at solving the problem, but they're not the problem because most people who are healthy and have healed their trauma or haven't suffered significant trauma aren't going to go to drug use. They're not even going to get to the door. You could lay, you could put a whole bunch of cocaine in front of them or heroin in front of them with a bunch of needles and they're not going to pick it up because that's not how it works. It works because we're trying to numb the pain and dull the feelings that we have based on our trauma. If you don't need to dull the pain and you have other outlets for experiencing trauma and and healing from trauma, then you're not going to turn to drugs and alcohol and other things to avoid those hard feelings. So ACEs are very, very common. They're strong predictors of later health risk. The combinations, the combination makes ACEs the leading determinant of health and social well-being in our nation. So we know this. We know this. The leading cause of addiction and death isn't drugs. It's trauma. I really want people to recognize that it's not about Sure, do, do are drugs addictive? Yeah, they are addictive. And methamphetamine was the very first drug used by doctors and prescribed to patients with a diagnosis of depression. We introduced methamphetamine into the environment in order to treat a depression. So it's why is it shocking today that people are going towards methamphetamine to self-medicate probably against trauma that has caused their depression. All right, so moving right along, early relationships are the most important thing in a child's life, period, end of story. There's no way that um, a a child can exist without a loving person to take care of them. And we know what happens when babies are born into the world but they have nobody to care for them, they will die. So there have lots of survival strategies like making eye contact, which floods the brain with oxytocin for the person who makes eye contact and says, oh my gosh, I'm in love with you, little baby. I'm gonna take you and I'm gonna take care of you and blah, 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 and there you go down the road. And many of us have had that feeling with our children and grandchildren and other people's children. We are, we are neurochemically built to care for one another, and it starts at the beginning of life, which is beautiful. Then we kind of somehow mess up because of this big trauma thing. Now, what I want to say is tomorrow, be here again, same time, because I have a conflict in the morning again, 1.30, tomorrow. And we're going to talk about resilience because that's really now I call myself a delusional optimist because that is my favorite subject is resiliency and how we take tools to mediate trauma that happens to us and turn it into the ability to overcome trauma. And it's not a one and done. We're going to struggle with this kind of stuff our whole lives until we reorganize our system and communities to be healthier for everyone. 
But until we do that, we, we can't even start until we're all on the same page and talking about it, which is what my goal is. So I want to read Claudia's comment. I'll never forget my colleague's reaction to my number after we took the questionnaire in our trauma class. Gulp. Yeah, Claudia, it's so, so true that, you know, it's really interesting that we have, that's why resiliency is so important because my beautiful friend, I see you as such an amazingly resilient person and mentor to me. And I too have a fairly high number. And so, but where does your resiliency come from? That's an important question to start with that we all have to ask. And I always say, that a lot of my resiliency comes from my brother. I have a brother who is 18 months older than me, and he was a huge protector in just my whole life from when I was born. He was a baby when I was born, but yet his ability to be right there with me at all times created this level of a buffering effect in some way. And so... It's, it's really interesting how, um, how trauma works and how resiliency works and how even in the same family, people can be highly resilient and yet other people in the family can be highly traumatized. So Derek says, neurochemically built to connect with each other. I like it. Tell me more. Trust versus mistrust. Well, yes, trust versus mistrust. Absolutely. If we don't have trusting, loving, connected relationships, and we never feel safe in the world. And safety allows us to be adventurous and also helps us to predict safety in the world, which is important. And so we can't live our lives fully unless we have trusting, connected relationships. And that all happens at the very beginning of life. All right, so as we wrap this up today, my one of my favorite topics, but never will beat out resiliency, understanding ACEs and its developmental influences. So we can't really begin to look at maladaptive behavior. So that's that odd behavior that people present with as pathological or as, you know, problematic without first looking at and understanding the behavior in the context of normal development. We develop in a normal sequence, a, a predictable sequence. When we see something maladaptive, when we see something that's a little off or odd or you know wonky, then we say, wait a second, we need to, um, we need to look at this in the context of development. And then we also need to look at this in the context of trauma and in the context of, you know, our person and our family and our community. So what teachers are, what parents are, what we all are, are great questioners. We need to ask ourselves, what's up in this picture? Be curious, be questioners, be inquirers about behavior and feelings because they'll tell us a lot. And when we talk to young people and young children about their feelings and we give their feelings words to help them along, then they're able to express those feelings fully throughout their lives. And when you are able to express your feelings, what happens is it's like you're dispersing your trauma. 
when you're able to say this terrible thing happened to me and I felt like this and this and this and then these people came and did this and blah, 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 blah. When you're able to tell your story, whether it's orally, whether it's in a written form, whatever form it's in, you're dispersing trauma and that's healing. That's healing for the body, soul, and the mind. I love you and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. If you're interested in booking a training, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at my website, Dr. B Connections. There's a big button that says, book a training with Dr. B. It's that easy. If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. Now, go leave a life friend.